0: There are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Dreams are made of this. Let's dance. And total eclipse of the heart were among the songs dominating the charts this year. The average cost of a new home was eighty-two thousand six hundred dollars. A new Ford Mustang cost six thousand seven hundred fifty-two dollars, and a gallon of milk is a buck thirty-five. The United States invaded Grenada, rescuing nearly a 1,000 U.S. civilians trapped in the country after a coup d'etat backed by Cuba. Ronald Reagan proposed the Star Wars defense platform in a live televised address. And China's population hit a billion total people for the first time. Kids were buying Cabbage Patch dolls, c and and the Atari 5200, and grown-ups were rocking rugby pullovers and leg warmers. The first mobile phones were introduced, as were Microsoft Word, Fraggle Rock, and the first Mario Brothers game, which made its debut as an arcade cabinet in Japan. All that and the birth of the internet, too. Man, give it up one last time for the chaos that was 1983. Down at Fraggle Rock! Down at Fraggle Rock! Down at Fraggle Rock! Hi, everybody, I'm Drew McQueenie, and welcome to our very last episode of season four of the show. As always, I'm joined by my co-host Scott Weinberg. What's up, sir? Nice recap of 1983, a year that
1: doesn't uh, hold a very special place in my heart for movies, (laughs) but uh, we are here to highlight the best and brightest of the year. I think that people will discover that while it is kind of a running gag that I dislike this year overall, we are going to uh, have a lot of high points and good films to talk about. So let's... Wrap this year up and let's do it in style. And by that, I I want Bobby
0: to put some cool music in there. We start by talking about something that I am not always a big fan of the conversation about, but I do love it in historical context, just to look at what people went to see. Like, I'm curious about what actually sold tickets. It's
1: fascinating to me. I think the older a film is,
0: The more interesting the context of its box office is It sets a context rather than it feeling like a contest that you have to be invested in at the moment Drew, I'm going to let you open up the top 10 because I know it's a film near and dear to your heart Uh, You know, for for 1983, $63 million was a pretty big respectable number Especially for a movie starring a kid nobody really knew yet, Tom Cruise I love Risky Business, man
1: We just had the release of Mission Impossible Fallout. So I've seen a handful of recent articles about Tom Cruise. And it's always interesting how Risky Business is addressed as one of the key films in his career. But I don't know if people really get how this was his arrival.
0: And it was giant for the time, like $63 then. It's a phenomenon. That's like everybody knew what it was. Everybody was aware of it. And yeah, how many times that year did you see him slide out in the underwear and the shirt? That image became part of 1983's sort of vocabulary. Drew and I have had
1: a lot of fun kind of charting uh, Tom Cruise's appearances. Oh, the area is in Endless Love and he a bigger part in Taps. Oh, he gets to star in All the Right Moves. And from Risky Business on, there are no secrets. You, you know every film he's made. <laughs> What was number nine, Scott? Mr. Mom. Wow. A lovable, scruffy, feature-length sitcom with a great cast brought in 64.7. That's
0: amazing to me because, dude, it looks like Malcolm in the Middle. Like, it is not a terribly impressive movie. Aside from the cast – yeah, the movie
1: is three <laughs> episodes of a sitcom wedged together, and that's fine because it's an amiable version of that. But yeah, I'm a little surprised that it was that big of a hit, and I think it's because Michael Keaton was now making his mark as somebody that people would go see a movie because
0: he's in it. It also there is something about the trope of the dad who is so functionally moronic. That he, like, tries to put the baby in the toaster, and he tries to diaper the dog, and he accidentally puts mashed potatoes in the washing machine, and it works every time. It's crazy the way people will go see that shit. And, and it's
1: got that coolness where it's, like, a family-friendly movie, but it's not, like, a family movie. It's not a, a Disney-fied type movie. It still has a little bit of an edge to it. So, anyway, yeah, Mr. Right. Mom-
0: Michael Keaton's the guy
1: from the Hooker movie. Uh Now we move on to number eight, Drew. This one's all yours.
0: (laughs) I've had so many conversations about this movie lately, just randomly and out of nowhere that it's a little weird. I feel like I'm being followed by staying alive. I feel like I said its name too many times, and now it's like Candyman. It's just it's going to appear behind me and haunt me forever. It is unreal that this movie was that big a hit. But then you have to remember Saturday Night Fever was a monster. So there was a built in desire for this to be something. Plus, if,
1: if ever, the top films so far have shown that movie star power in the early 80s was reigning supreme. John Travolta, the, who at this point could have made almost anything, not two of a kind, Well, and the
0: ad campaign for that
1: was entirely
0: his body. That was it. It was John Travolta essentially oiled and naked here. This is what you're going to get. If
1: I'm not mistaken, he did have a headband, a little blue headband wrapped around his head.
0: It's delightful, too. Uh,
1: If you're just looking for unintentional humor, this movie is where you'll find it. This is a a wellspring of straight faced ineptitude.
0: Uh, I'm really happy that Tony Manero's story stopped cold where it did. How come there was no part three? This one made a lot of money. I don't know. But I will tell you, I would do happily right now today, if you gave me permission, I would do a sequel to our next movie, number seven. All of these are like really close. It's 63, 64, 64, then 67. And this is, of course, Sudden Impact. Go ahead. Make my day. I would do a movie with Dirty Harry now because I, there, I heard a phrase one time and the phrase is so good that it's got to be a movie. The cops who retire to these private cop communities in like Idaho, where the only people who live there are cops. They call them blue heaven. Those communities have got to be bizarre. I would do a movie about Dirty Harry retiring to a all police white enclave community and some shits going down and Dirty Harry can't leave it alone because he's Dirty Harry and it's other old cops versus Dirty Harry. You could cast the shit out of that.
1: If I could pitch uh, Dirty Harry Part 6, it would be three or four people have banded together because their parents and or other loved ones were killed by Dirty Harry in the past without due process, just murdered in the street. And they band together
0: to take him down.
1: I'm down with that. Did we discuss this before? What is the best Dirty Harry movie overall?
0: I think the best Dirty Harry movie is Dirty Harry. I think it's, yeah. the, I think it's the one that has the, the real voice and point part two is damn good i think part two is wild part two is a wild john millius movie and it's way more john millius than the first one is by part four he had almost become like a stoic self-parody yeah and and we'll get to deadpool and i'm going to be angry when we get there but we'll save that for another day um speaking of angry hey number six Made literally like dollars more than Dirty Harry. So they were neck and neck, which is crazy because that means for a little while, this fascist, the renegade vigilante cop was just as big a movie icon as James Bond in Octopussy.
1: 67.8 million these things are you know guaranteed box office hits to some degree or another but i don't recall people talking very fondly of octopussy back in the day
0: it was fascinating because this was when i was starting to read like Starlog and fantastic films and i would read all the mainstream magazines that i could read and i remember how much they built up the summer that was coming and the war of the james bonds and then never say never again blanked and moved off the summer as soon as it came out It was like the press realized that they were rooting for two sides in a fight where they didn't want a punch to be thrown. That first film put just a blanket on that conversation for the rest of the year. And Never Say Never was a non-event. The press was like, yeah, yeah. And then now the other one's coming out, too. Just don't look. Yeah. When your action
1: star is aging like Roger Moore was – tailor the film around that
0: <laughs> can we find out how old roger moore was when he shot octopussy versus how old tom cruise is right now because i'd be curious to know what the difference in those years was i'm guessing it's less than we think number
1: five is refreshing because our last five have been all movie star led is james bond we got dirty harry we got uh, john travolta michael keaton tom cruise now we got something totally different and I don't know if the producers expected this much out of war games.
0: Shall we play a game? Oh <laughs> I think I missed them.
1: Yeah, weird, isn't it? Yeah. Love to.
0: No, and it was a troubled production. You know, this this was a movie that I think they probably were just hoping, oh God, let's just not lose our shirts. Because they nail it, because they walk that line so well and it's not cutesy and the end of it, there's real stakes. The end of that film is so beautifully suspenseful and so well done. And and yet, I think one of the things that we talked about during the show that is so refreshing about War Games is there's not a villain in the movie. There's not a bad guy trying to make bad shit happen. It is about... How we unwittingly will cause our own destructions because we put these systems in place and these fail safes in place and we count on ourselves and and shit's going to go wrong and things are just going to start to get away from us. I really like to think that if we could uh, move back in time uh, with the
1: current social media stratus and, and we were to write an article about the top 10 of 1983, the headline would be. Two teenage kids unseat James Bond, Dirty Harry, John Travolta, blah, blah, blah. Because those all made between 63 and 68 million. War Games made 80. That That's not just squeaking by. That is a
0: solid footprint. Teenagers are clearly now... Very big business, and they are very important audience members. A lot of this is adult iconography. Dirty Harry's for adults. Tony Manero, I would argue, is for adults. Even James Bond is thought of more for adults than for kids. By th- at this point, you know, they, they, he was still very much my dad's movie series. Teenagers, it's clear, are starting to wield a pretty remarkable amount of power. And Hollywood is definitely by this point paying very close attention to that.
1: Now we move to number 4 with a an impressive 90 million dollars John Landis's trading places. I have
0: <laughs> Get the fuck out. I have two observations here. First, I am surprised. And I think Hollywood was surprised, and I think clearly the backstory of what happened is part of it. I'm surprised that in this top 10 list, Twilight Zone the movie does not appear, because I would argue there was no bigger deal going into the year than those guys working together on that title. Now, the really fascinating part about this to me, about him having a number four hit, a movie this big, $90 million in 1983, is that's gigantic money, due in large part to Eddie Murphy. Murphy. John Landis, when he took this, literally took this because he wanted to be out of town. He didn't want to be in Los Angeles. And he said to his agent, I need something to start shooting. I will take anything to start shooting in the next month. They had something that was starting to shoot. In two weeks, Landis stepped in to get out of Los Angeles into one of the biggest hits of his entire career. Man, you want to talk about the ups and downs of this industry embodied in one human being. I think 1983 is one of those years where that's it, folks. That's about as bad as it gets. And that's about as good as it gets. It's a pretty remarkable year for any filmmaker.
1: I think the cast is great. I think my city looks beautiful. Uh, I'm glad that it made so much money. And I'm pretty one. I would bet hard cash that the only reason this made more than 30 million dollars is because Eddie Murphy was in it.
0: And this is just building to what's about to happen. But people were hungry and Eddie Murphy was ready.
1: Between 48 Hours and SNL, for better or for worse, literally anything he released would have made $75 million.
0: We're going to have a good conversation about that coming this year. Because <laughs> uh, Number three, uh, the biggest piece of garbage on this list, I think, and the highest piece of garbage on this list, Flashdance. Flash. This made just under $93 That's amazing. That's amazing money. And look, you know what? I can't argue with that. It 100% touched a nerve. There's one thing that I just, you know, I've noticed when we were putting this list together.
1: Risky business. Mr. Mom. Staying alive. Sudden impact. Octopussy. War games. Trading places. These are all sausage parties. Oh, 100%. So as much as I don't like Flashdance and I truly think it's just like a literally a feature length rock video, the fact that Young women and older women saw a trailer
0: and went, oh, God, a female lead. Fuck yeah. And they went to see it. This is the MTV dream that is being sold to every white dude. And it's being sold on Jennifer Beals. And she is a perfect blank for that film. And sometimes a blank is what you need for a hit. I I would argue there are movies that are less hits because you fall in love with the actual character you're looking at, and more hits because they become audience wish engines. I think that's why a lot of times you see in movies they hope will
1: be global blockbusters, they'll put a bland, smallish, white guy in the lead.
0: That's what the 80s was. The 80s wanted Ted Wass. The 80s wanted boring. They wanted a really safe, (laughs) simple white guy who could roll his sleeves up and be wacky and talk loud, but was safe. And That's going to be a big part of what we talk about this decade, watching how Michael Keaton at some point goes, I can't fucking do it anymore and breaks and we'll see how they decide they're not boring. It's astonishing how much money this movie made. A big part of this is soundtrack driven. Clearly, Simpson and Bruckheimer's idea that you drive it all through MTV and the constant promotion. It was constant. There were nine or ten hit singles off that album. So by the time the end of the year came around, you could put on MTV and over the space of three or four hours, see four flash dance commercials that weren't commercials.
1: Right. No, it's like if you can get five bands to write five good songs and you put them in your album uh, on your soundtrack album and the audiences like those songs, then it's like win, 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 win for everybody. It's all just a money party. So, Drew, we mentioned that aside from Flashdance, this entire list is very uh testosterone heavy, which
0: you know It is what it is. I mean, that's just what was selling that year. So
1: let's now move from ninety-two point nine million for Flashdance to
0: 108.4 wow, for terms of endearment. That is mighty. That is a mighty number. And you know what? God damn it, Terms of Endearment deserves it. Terms of Endearment is an entertainment machine. It is I have a feeling feeling
1: we'll be discussing terms of endearment a little bit later in this episode. So let's just be impressed by its one hundred and eight million dollar haul and and hold off on our effusive praise for a little bit. Just say it would be worth the ticket price. Oh, absolutely. So, Drew, terms of endearment
0: made one hundred and eight million. What would you what would happen if you doubled one hundred and eight million? Oh, my God. 216 million. No movie would make 260. No movie would make double the number 2 movie.
1: Not only did it make double, but then you could add another 40 some and then you have the 252 million dollar haul of Return of the Jedi.
0: Holy shit That number is so insane It did like triple what number three did Seriously forgetting adjusted inflation This is why the adjusted inflation thing makes no sense to me Look at it in context That year The number 10 movie made 63 million. It made more than three times as much as the number 10. If you add the number 10 film, the number nine film, and the number eight film, you do not have Return of the Jedi's Gross. It is crazy. And and
1: the thing is that we're staring at is the thing that every single studio accountant and producer in Hollywood looked at and they went, damn, these are all good numbers. I'd be happy to have any of these hits, Sudden Impact, Trading Trading Places, Terms of Endearment. But then they look and they go, how can we get to that? How can we
0: get to $250 million? George Lucas drove Hollywood insane and Hollywood drove George Lucas insane. They fucked each other up terribly and in different ways because george lucas set a bar and he said it accidentally he meant it when he said that I, i'm just this uh, weird experimental filmmaker i just want to make uh, movies about um, planes and uh, cars and uh, occasionally people who walk through the frame and we'll see what happens and uh, i believe that i believe that that was george lucas at a certain point and star wars was <laughs> him buying a kind of freedom and it's like okay well i can play in the studio so i can do this in an
1: alternate universe star wars comes out and it makes like 60 70 million dollars just a decent hit people like it and then george lucas goes on to do a world war ii drama or a comedy or a musical you know but
0: the problem is he and spielberg were so perfectly in tune with what they wanted to see and it's what none of these executives got they both made the perfect example of the thing that oh, yeah, they yeah. love. We
1: talked about this many times and we will again, do not copy the success of people, copy the inspiration. If they were inspired by what they loved as a kid, worked so well for them, that's what you should do. Think of something that inspired you as a kid and then build build it through your own filter. That's what they did. It wasn't, hey, let's uh, think of a pre-programmed way to make a smash hit. It was make a fun adventure movie, an archaeologist adventure, make a space adventure that we would want to go see and then roll the dice and hope.
0: I think we'd never seen anything like that. And part of the reason it was so much bigger than anything else that was going on was because they were the first ones to sort of shamelessly push the nostalgia button of, I'm just going to make a warm bath and get in it. It's going to be awesome. Right. And what's interesting now
1: is like, you know, how many giant juggernaut franchises there are. They're everywhere. And this was the first. I mean, Jaws was a huge hit, but the franchise
0: was not a juggernaut. Yeah, and the fr- this franchise was just jaw-dropping. And, you know, there was nothing like going to the box office that first weekend going downtown we ate a special lunch we got in line early we stood in line people around us had posters and shirts and everybody was excited and buzzing and and
1: that's what is i don't that's why i will never be i sometimes am cynical about the hollywood machine but when i see six kids bolting out of wonder woman dancing and when i see kids lined up for force Awakens smiling and i see 15 year old kids running out to see avengers and and, and in cosplay it's like it's not exactly how my youth was, but it's the same. They're loving an art form that, that we love, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. From the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles, California, the 56th Annual Academy Awards. All right, so now we're going to move on to the Oscars. We're not going to uh, ramble too much, but it's also very—I think it's of historical import. You've won me over a bit because I think I started more cynical about. I
0: hate the Oscars. Fuck the Oscars. I
1: mean, I think the Oscars are half very hollow and cynical, and on the other half, there it celebrates an art form that we love. So even though there's a lot of
0: warts to the system. Yeah, by looking at the big winners and by looking at the the sort of what they were up against, what each of these big winners kind of was facing, I, I think you get a picture of the year and sort of, I've said this before, it's the picture the industry wants to take of itself. And I'm a little fascinated by what they ignored and what they rewarded. And it's not what I would have expected. Another good reason I think you'll
1: agree to cover these old Oscars is that it's just another a way to mention what are almost entirely good films. For example, Best Actor, nominated both Tom Courtney and Albert Finney from The Dresser. Also, Tom Conti for Ruben Rubin, good performance in a not good film. Michael Caine in Educating Rita, fantastic. And the winner is... Ha-ha!
0: And it explains why, in my head, even though I don't walk around with Oscar trivia as forefront knowledge, I have always thought of Tom Conti, Ruben Rubin, Educating Rita, and The Dresser as this group of films where they're very similar types of performances. Uh, totally true, but now I get it Now I get why I've always grouped them It's because unconsciously I remember them being the class of 83 that were Showing up and everything together And Duvall being the winner here for tender mercies Makes perfect sense to me because it's a totally different performance than these others, which are all very similar. There's Duvall in Tinder Mercy's just being Duvall at 100%. Yeah, I never noticed that, that there are four
1: Brits and one American in the American one. Ooh, controversy. Uh, Best actor in a supporting role. Rip Torn for Cross Creek. I like that. Sam Shepard for The Right Stuff. That's awesome. That's a great nomination. I 100% concur with that. John Lithgow for Terms of Endearment. Yes. And Charles Durning for To Be or Not To Be.
0: Wow. <sighs> okay. That's weird, man. That is a weird nomination in every way.
1: The winner is Jack Nicholson. Turns
0: <laughs> which, uh, why did anybody else show up? Because that year you had to know that that was Nicholson's. Nicholson was part of what made that a box office juggernaut, certainly. Which was one of the first moments that Nicholson went from being an acclaimed actor who was in cultural hits that everybody talked about and became Jack Nicholson box office gold? Yeah, Robert Duvall is lucky that Terms of
1: Endearment didn't have a male lead <laughs> because I, it probably whoever it was would have gotten a lead. All right, best actress in a leading role Julie Walters for Educating Rita, Deborah Winger for Terms of Endearment, Meryl Streep for Silkwood, Jane Alexander for Testament. The winner is a rock. <laughs> The winner is Shirley MacLaine. Again, great performances. I, I'm kind of stunned at Meryl Streep. Like you would say, watch Silkwood. And you'd be like, how did Meryl Streep not win the Oscar for that film? Oh, my God. And then, you know what? Then watch Terms of Endearment.
0: <laughs> and you go,
1: oh,
0: because this came out. It's, it feels unfair because Shirley MacLaine, it's an iconic performance that you were handed this fully formed character Larry McMurtry's book is so good, and McMurtry at his very best, when he was on his game and running at full strength, they were gifts to actors. So I get it, man. This this thing felt like every actor in town needed to bow down in front of it at some
1: point. We move on to Best Actress in a Supporting Role. This one is very colorful and interesting. Alfre Woodard, her only Oscar nomination for Cross Creek. Amy Irving, nominated for Yentl, which I thought was kind of a surprise, but she is really good in it. Cher in Silkwood, Glenn Close, probably the best performance in The Big Chill. And the winner is Linda Hunt.
0: Well, okay, let's back up for a second. Amy Irving reminds me, what movie is just not in this conversation today? Yentl. I'm guessing that at the time, and I don't remember because I didn't pay a lot of attention to Oscar snub talk because it was already starting to become an Oscar jerk, I'm guessing there was a lot of, oh, my God, Barbara Streisand didn't get nominated for actress, director, any of it. That's kind of a big deal, because now looking at it, I would assume that Intel would have been like Oscar bait. I'll bet you money that was a big deal. and
1: how about a big deal if it happened today, a white woman playing an Asian man winning the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress? It's a phenomenal performance. Let's put that statement down. It's a staggeringly good performance, but- might not be so
0: readily accepted today. Now, let me read the next one for director. This is a hell of a lineup. Bruce Beresford, nominated for Tender Mercies. That's a delicate piece of work. I'm impressed by that nomination. Mike Nichols for Silkwood. We talked about the fact that now as an adult, I have a very different opinion of Mike Nichols' work on that film. I think it's very impressive. Ingmar Bergman for Fanny and Alexander, nominated. And then the one that floors me, Peter Yates for Krull. No, for the dresser. Oh, I'm sorry. Because, OK, I was really thrown when his name showed up. And that is a real testament to the year that dude had that he directed Krull that summer and he was nominated for best director. Like, Imagine him early in the year when like maybe Krull is like
1: getting finished and they know it's not going to be a hit and it's kind of a mess. And he's like, I'm never going to work again. I, uh, I ruined my career doing this space adventure movie. Oh, my God. And then six months later, eight months later, you're nominated for Best Director.
0: I love that about him, and it truly is a remarkable story. And then all those dudes, imagine being in that lineup of guys, and then you see Terms of Endearment, and you go, oh, okay, so James L. Brooks is going to take it all from Yes. And the winner is James L. Brooks for Terms of Endearment.
1: Isn't it easier to do a movie like Terms of Endearment? And in a technical sense, maybe, yeah, it might be easier to do Terms of
0: Endearment than the right stuff. But you know what? It's a fucking roller coaster, man. A lifetime. Between these two characters, and you've got a chart, okay, how am I going to do that? How am I going to show the growth of them? At what point is it Deborah Winger? At what point is it kid? How much of the kid do I show? Do I show really any? Do I get right to the adulthood? What do we do as they age through this thing? There's a million questions on terms of endearment before you ever get to casting. That's where James L. Brooks wins that award that year because he realized it's Clash of the fucking Titans and you have to make it that. So he did. I'm stunned also
1: that Philip Kaufman was not nominated for The Right Stuff.
0: Well, And then you look at Best Picture and you would think it would line up, but it doesn't because Big Chill is nominated and Right Stuff is nominated. uh, um, Also, I just throw this in there. Fanny
1: and Alexander did win for uh, Art Direction, Cinematography and Costume Design. Uh, I I would have given that Oscar to Caleb Deschanel again for the right stuff.
0: What's your favorite nomination of the year? For me, I love that Gordon Willis got nominated for Zelig. What he had to do in that movie is sell effects that were not ready to be sold. That movie barely works, and it works because it's impeccably photographed. And when you listen to Gordon Willis talk about everything he had to do to bend reality, to make it kind of merge with what Woody Allen had shot – It's super heroic. He didn't win, but I'm really happy they recognize the accomplishment of this movie. Um, I'd also like to point out that uh, Ruben Rubin was nominated for Best Screenplay, Best Adapted Screenplay. The nominee, Julius J. Epstein, co-writer of Casablanca, nominated for the most batshit crazy thing I saw in any movie that year that left turn the last 35 seconds of Ruben Rubin takes. Hats off, Julius J.
1: Epstein. Hats off, dude. Uh, another another interesting category this year was Best Song, because there were two songs from Yentl nominated, two songs from Flashdance, and one song from Tender Mercies. And I can only imagine Barbra Streisand watching the Oscar thinking, all right, I wasn't nominated for actor. I wasn't nominated for director. i am got to win Best Song, right? I mean, come on. Uh, this is what, right, this is what I do. I'm Barbra Streisand. And then the winner goes to... Oh, Barb. I mean, you got to feel a little bad, but
0: Yentl's a damn good movie, so. Okay, so Scott, before we get into the list stuff, I want to ask you, because I'm always curious, is there a film that you feel very differently about now than you did then?
1: I probably feel most differently about The Right Stuff bored me as a kid, and now I I would watch it. I mean, uh, if I didn't have 30,000 movies to watch for the podcast, I think I'd watch it again next week. And, and Risky Business is another one where I, as a kid, I think I fell prey to it's being mature and I didn't want mature and I wasn't aware that I that's what I was reacting to. I wanted vulgar <laughs> and yeah, you want You wanted uh, Porky. Yeah, you yeah. wanted, And I did not like Risky Business as a kid and it just uh, always be willing to uh, give a movie another look with fresh eyes because you change every two, five, 10, 20 years, you're a
0: different person for me it was never say never again i walked into that chip on my shoulder about the fact that connery walked away from it already twice enough already and this isn't james bond it's not the series and i was i had a real stick up my ass about the eon series was the series At this point, I have a stick up my ass about Eon letting go of some control at some point. Let other people play in the sandbox, for God's sake. So Never Say Never Again now I look at as this interesting experiment, this weird one-off. And as I said when we recorded the episode, I got to give it up to Barbara Carrera for a... Jack Nicholson is the Joker level bad guy performances Fatima Blush. She has the best time being the worst person. I'm just really glad I walked, walked into it and actually watched it for the show because I, I'm so used to my old opinion it. Because if you had
1: it. said, Scott, what's, what, to, what do you think of Never Seen Ever Again? I'd be like, um, kind of strained, overlong, not very good. Now I'd be like, no, it's not bad. It's better than its reputation suggests, let's say. All right, so let's dig in now, man. Real quick. Drew, a lot of our listeners know me as a horror
0: nerd. Videodrome. I'm a fan. Psycho 2. A big fan. I think it's a very smart sequel. Extro, Holy cow. Cujo. Very faithful. And um, for parents, maybe the hardest thing to sit through you'll ever watch. Pieces. What? Well, well, uh, All
1: right. I, I now, you know what? I, I finally have found a silver lining to 1983. This is the year that gave us pieces and extra. And then there are a few other real good horror films that I think will be included in our top 10. So we won't cover those, but I would like to very briefly send a fond farewell to something I hate. And I'm glad that it's dead. It's got one last lingering heartbeat and it shows up in late 1985. But I want to say on behalf of Amityville three jaws, three Friday, the 13th three space hunter, Metal Storm, The Man Who Wasn't There, Treasure of the Four Crowns, coming at you. Fuck you, 3D of 1983. Fuck you, Fuck 3D. You. Now we're gonna move on to what I like to call, I've copyrighted this phrase, our 10 favorites of the year. Now, two things people should know. One, we don't know what each other's lists are. And number two, and my list is better. That my list is right. Yeah. <laughs> These are what these are our top tens. There's so many. You love that debate of what's best versus favorite. And to me, uh, I think that argument ends with people saying
0: that, like, best implies I know what's empirically best. Guys, I'm telling you front, War Games and Vacation and Risky Business and The Big Chill are all movies I love. And they're not on my list. So, whoa. Yeah. All right. What's your number 10? All right. Number 10. I love Koyaanisqatsi. Oh wow. And the influence of the movie, I think it is a movie that became part of every filmmaker's language moving forward. It's as gigantic in its influence as something like Birth of a Nation without all the nasty racism. So God bless Koyaanisqatsi. I love that movie. I love that you are
1: slightly more uh, articulated in the art
0: house direction
1: because my number 10 is a fucking horror movie about a killer car. It's called
0: Christine. I would never argue with Christine showing up on a list like this, especially because I don't think Christine gets enough love, man. Here's the
1: thing. Not only do I think it's a well-made, entertaining horror film, it also is a hugely impactful film on me. As a reader, as a movie fan, as a horror fan, King and Carpenter fan, Harry Dean Stanton fan, Keith Gordon fan, this movie was an Hugely impactful for me, and I I absolutely love Christine.
0: You know, you know who doesn't like this movie? The shitters. That's who. You
1: know what they say? You can't polish a turd.
0: Man, your number 10 is a uh, that is a winner, dude. Uh my number nine is a horror film as well. Oh shit. And I got mad love for the evil dead. Sam Raimi's debut film is a shotgun blast of invention and pure. Manic need to tell stories. One of the things that was so exciting about discovering Sam Raimi or discovering Joel and Ethan Cohen, the filmmakers in this era who really came into their own and whose voices began to grow. One of the things that was so incredible about it was realizing They've got all this stuff inside them that they have to get out, that this stuff has to come out. And it's cartoons and movies and music. And imagine somebody comes in, bursting into your living room and says,
1: oh, my God, come here. You've got to see this. Nine times out of ten, what they have to show you is not that impressive.
0: Evil Dead is that tenth time. People use this term sometimes, and I'm, I'm going to use it. And I'm going to use it because I'm old enough that I was there and I'm using it because I mean it. The Evil Dead was fucking punk rock. The first time you showed The Evil Dead to somebody, it was a dare. Oh, you like horror films? Ha ha! Let me see what you think of this. And Evil Dead became this gauntlet you had to run because, man, it took no prisoners. And I gave my heart to this thing 100% when I first found it. I look at it now and it just makes me nostalgic for the kids in the woods who made this goddamn movie.
1: Yep. Uh, I'm embarrassed to admit that Evil Dead did not make my top 10 because of a clerical oversight, and I still have it stupidly registered as 1981, but I'm so elated that you put it in your top 10 because it is one of my very favorite horror films of the entire decade. Uh, My number nine is a film that you left off, and I think the reason I added it is because I I just appreciate it so much more with adult eyes, and that is… The Business of Riskiness.
0: Yay! And see, I'm delighted that it's on your list because it deserves to be on one of the lists. And it's great. And it's important. And it is so stylish, man. That's one of the things. And it's stylish before everybody started shooting movies like this. It's a Trojan horse. It's a smart
1: movie about People and relationships in the package of a horny teenage. Yeah, the comedy. surfaces
0: are the point. It's like you get you get pulled in and seduced, and then it's about paying for that seduction. We've talked a lot about um, Rebecca De Mornay. We've talked a lot about Tom Cruise. We did not talk about somebody, and I want to go back and, t- and talk about them now because we have the, the opportunity in this regular episode. There's a scene in that film. That is so good and it fits into what we've been talking about, how there are progressive, fascinating, interesting portrayals of trans and gay and lesbian characters happening in film at this point. And it feels like every time it pops up, oh, wow, look at somebody getting it right. It's the scene early on when he calls for the sex worker and she shows up the house.
1: Hello, Joel. I'm Jackie. How are you this evening? Nice to meet you, Jackie. I'm not Joel, J- Joel stepped out for a moment. Um, I'll go call him, Joel, thank you.
0: That scene, the way it plays out, is so not the joke that I think any 10 other movies from this decade would have played. And that actor is so incredibly good in that scene in making sure Cruz realizes, you're not going to laugh at me and you're not going to treat me badly because I came out here because you called me and I'm doing a job. And man, it stuck with me as a young viewer that this was not a character to be laughed at or mocked. And the importance of seeing it in a film like this really can 't be overstated, man, especially in eighty three on the surface, very likable, affable, funny teenage
1: comedy beneath the surface there 's a lot of mature themes and ideas being brought
0: around, being tossed around. Uh, my number eight is a movie that I consider just a um, big old fashioned movie movie done right, made almost as a dare by a filmmaker who rose to the occasion and delivered a classic in the form of The Outsiders. Fun just to watch the ensemble, like, you know, just see
1: them playing off each other, all these actors that you know so well. It's like a pin full of puppies, and all the puppies happen to be famous. But even beyond the novelty of of the cast... It's a fascinating, heartfelt, suspenseful
0: movie. We didn't grow up in this era. We didn't grow up with the Soches and the the Greasers. and And it was never quite this dramatic in anything I experienced in high school or any of my social experiences. But I recognized that there was a point where things were really codified. And this was a way that people were starting to assert who they were. And there was a code. People dressed by code. And that's a society that I'm so interested in. And I think Coppola captures all of the pumped up angst of the writing of S.E. Hinton, who wrote that as a teenager. He respects the fact that a teenager wrote the book. So he's going to make it the way a teenager feels it. And that movie is played as opera. Number eight on my list probably should be higher. Uh, I I
1: loved it as a kid. I still like it very much as an adult. Let's discuss how you feel about those Ewoks.
0: It's not on my list,
1: so I'm glad you.
0: Return put it on your of the list.
1: Jedi is not on your list. I am unsubscribing to this podcast. What now? What if I hadn't done the right thing? I've always had complicated feelings about Return of the Jedi. I mean, that's a great line. <laughs> I mean, it's like That would be a great pickup line in a bar. Hi. Hey, how you doing? Can I buy a drink? I have always had complicated feelings about Return of the Jedi. Cool. I'm going to stand over right. there. Um, I think it is the relatively weakest of the trilogy. A large segment of it does feel like a remake of the first film. And whether or not you think that's intentional and fine or cheap and lazy, I acknowledge that it Goes too far in like maybe kid friendly a little bit here and there. But having said all that, there is no denying that this is a true, legitimate, real part of the trilogy. This is not like an X-Men last stand where somebody just said, oh, shit, we need a part three and let's slap this together. Um, I think Lucas maybe played it a little safe. That's the biggest complaint that I would have about Return of the Jedi is that after taking so many brazen and and winning chances with Empire, this just feels entertaining and satisfying, but just maybe five, 10 degrees too safe. But I love Hamill. I love Ford. I love Carrie Fisher. Yeah, the stuff I love, I love. I love the Sarlacc, the Rancor. I love, you know, there's so much that I do like about it that when it kind of starts like running in motion and starts to feel very familiar in Act Three. I'm okay with that.
0: Hey, it's Return of the Jedi man. I uh, I, I have I, the stuff I love, I love so much, and and it's just it just didn't make my list. there There were movies I enjoyed more. And I think it's because of the frustrations. It's because, yes, I had expectations. Jedi was the birth of Star Wars fans who didn't like Star Wars. I certainly remember being hyped. I certainly remember being excited. And I certainly remember all the conversations afterwards in which we tore it to pieces and not tore it to pieces just badly, just took it down to its fundamental parts. I liked it overall more than some of my friends did. I think in general, most people were, I dug it. But some of my friends really, really didn't like Return of the Jedi. And that was the first time that I heard Star Wars fans. Just grumble.
1: It's certainly not like Return of the Jedi is a Superman three level embarrassment. So no matter what you think of it, it is still a legitimate movie. So, yeah, that kind of reaction kind of bummed me out. But now we're
0: look. we're going to we talk about Return of the Jedi for seven hours. What's your next movie? Uh, my number seven is The King of Comedy by director Martin Scorsese. And yeah, I um I love Rupert Pupkin. I love him. I love Rupert Pupkin and all his horrifying, awkward, should never leave his house glory. Sandra Bernhard's work in that movie is legendary. I would, this film would make my top 10 list for the scene in which she has Jerry Lewis finally to herself because that scene to me is better than Misery at saying everything there is to say about the bizarre, insane back and forth that exists between the very famous and the most rabid of fans. I still don't know if there's ever been a more articulate piece made about fandom and about media and about how it can drive you a little bit nuts when you believe that you have a real relationship with it. I I'm a big fan of this film.
1: I bigger fan of Scorsese's next dark comedy, which we'll get to soon. If what you mostly know of Scorsese are his great drama and crime films, you don't know the king of comedy and or after hours as these two, uh, well-regarded but relatively obscure comedies that he made. Well, King of Comedies not so obscure. I think After
0: Hours kind of is. And they really deserve to be watched. And it's a De Niro performance that I, I can't get enough of. I think De Niro, when he's funny, there's a long period of time where that was kind of a secret. And this was a movie where Okay, those of us who were in on it were like, okay, yeah, De Niro's really fucking funny in this movie. And then Midnight Run came out and wasn't the giant monster hit it should be. And it still felt like a secret. And it really wasn't until he got older that I felt like the mainstream caught up. But, hey, De Niro's been funny for a long time, folks. You know what?
1: You could say the same thing about Scorsese. He's been funny for a long time, too. But definitely check out The King of Comedy. My number seven is a Canadian film. And it's from a a filmmaker called David Cronenberg. And it's called... Videodrome.
0: You know, it's funny because I have a movie at number six on my list called Videodrome.
1: Oh, I think they might be the same film. You might have watched. The- <laughs> All right. Yeah, we I think we rambled about Videodrome for an hour on our on our full episode. What can we say about Videodrome that we haven't said yet?
0: It represents a moment where somebody got something uncompromised through a studio <laughs> I don't know that Cronenberg ever quite had this level of studio muscle behind him again with this kind of material. It's miraculous to me that it happened. But this is that weird moment where Universal went all in on Carpenter and Cronenberg and Really wanted to see what would happen. And kudos to the people who
1: are, at least the people at Universal, who hired him and said, All right, this is super weird, but we hired you and we're going to trust you. Great horror film. It is remarkably prescient as far as our obsession with media and reality television and the, the allure of voyeurism. It's disturbing. It's darkly funny. It's not even Cronenberg's best movie of the year. My number six is a Shakespeare adaptation that
0: moves me very deeply. And it's called Strange Brew. Wow. I'm really impressed. Not on my list. I love it. I think 13-year-old me would fight me in your favor. Drew, I love it as much as I did then. And the
1: fact that I love it as much as I did back then made me realize, like, that kid is still in you. All the stuff that tickled me as a kid, it just reminded me of renting
0: shit on VHS that I knew nothing about and like a half an hour in going, Oh, I like this. There are films that delight me from moment to moment. And Strange Brew is one of these where it's little stuff all the way through. I, it's one of the reasons I'm glad we had James on and we did the commentary for this one. We'll get to Buckaroo Banzai soon. And that one's that way for me, where just minute to minute, I can pause it and I can just look at any part of the frame and kind of talk to you about what, what it is that delights me about something that's happening right now or that interests me or some piece of it that I know something about. And I can't even take that whole experience apart anymore. This film fascinated me so intensely at some point that now it's this thing that I have this relationship with. It's just in your DNA after a certain point. You just love it. When we talk about things that just plain make us feel good, my number five movie is that way. It's uh, Bob Fosse's Star 80. Oh, boy. No, I'm sorry. I mean, uh, movies that make me want to eat a gun. Holy God.
1: I know it's a hard movie to love, but what is it about this film that that impacted you so
0: strongly? I think it is um, as visionary as Network in terms of taking on something that is toxic that has been implanted in us like a time bomb. Network knew that at some point, network news was going to metastasize into something that was going to simply pump lies and toxin into your brain 24-7, and it has. And I don't think that movie was even slightly exaggerated in what it postulated as a future. And I think in the case of Star 80, it understood that there is a horrifying side to the sexual revolution that is not inherent to it. There is a way to have a sexual revolution, a sexually open society that is not toxic and curdled, but you have to be willing. To have the real conversations and star 80 from the very beginning looks into the shotgun barrel and is unafraid to look into it and say, we might get fucking hurt. But this we have to look at it and we have to understand why he ended up in that room, why he felt entitled to it, why he felt like he owned the thing that was being taken from him. And we have to go backwards from there. What I love about this
1: movie, and it is, again, a hard movie to love is that I sense Bob Fosse is angry and said, I'm going to take these people down. I'm going to take this system down. It's an indictment. I'll bet there are no photos of Bob Fosse at the fucking mansion. It's an indictment. Let's just say it that way. It is
0: an indictment of of an entire system, and it's a system that still thrives. And even though she wasn't in the conversation, I would like to say in any rational conversation in my world, Mariel Hemingway would have been nominated for most of the acting awards at the end of the year. It is a very underrated performance, and I think it's because she plays it so simply. Well, it says something that people dismiss girls who look like her it's very easy to do and mariel hemingway made a career i think of being it's a good point underrated because of nailing the performances she was cast to give her snub is kind of an a
1: an ironic echo of the movie i feel strongly that yeah. way Yeah. all right well my number five i'm willing to wager money is also somewhere lingering on your list i'd only seen it for the first time this year sam Neill and isabella johnny in
0: possession That's my number four, and I 100% agree with you. I love this movie, man. Possession is so good. Because, you know, I I fancy
1: myself a horror expert, all right? There we go. I fancy myself a horror scholar. I was humiliated to admit that I had never seen Possession before. If I had watched this movie as a kid, Drew, I never would have watched it again. I just wouldn't have got it. I would have been bored. I'm glad that I never watched this at 14. And now... Having seen it as an adult and seeing other horror geeks go, oh, my God, Scott, is it amazing or what? And I
0: feel like I joined a club that I didn't know existed. There are films that as well as we know these years and as well as we know these genres and as well as we've sort of traveled this ground, there are going to be movies that we encounter that we go, oh, shit. How was I not already intimately familiar with this movie? I, I've been through some tough breakups
1: in my life, some very emotional, painful breakups. I, I don't think my worst breakup is anything compared to a divorce, especially if children are involved. So I can only imagine this film in a metaphorical, visceral, prime evil
0: sense encapsulates how that betrayal or that loss feels. And realizing that I don't know who this person is. And I think that he gets that part of it very, very right. I am glad that I didn't see Possession several years ago while I was actually getting divorced. I had enough distance that I watched it and I went, holy shit, when he made this movie, he was out of his mind. His anger is very real. I get all the anger exactly. And I think she is what saves it from being simple misogynistic revenge on film. Because if this movie, if the, if it's the wrong actor... This movie is Sam Neill shitting on some poor lady for two hours who is the stand-in for this dude's ex-wife. This is about
1: two people torturing each other emotionally, sometimes not even on purpose.
0: And they just, they are different people and she's doing something and he's doing something and he doesn't recognize her and she doesn't recognize him. And his job is literally to lie and to present a different face. And we've all heard that phrase, I don't know her anymore. I I
1: woke up and I I don't recognize him anymore. That shit happens and it's terrifying. I can like, that's what this movie is about. Someone you're madly in love with, you come back from a trip, You literally don't recognize her or him anymore. And this movie goes to some weird, dark, gory places, but it is absolutely fascinating. And congratulations on the sex monster. Uh, What's your number four, Scott? I think I'm uh, cribbing from you again, Drew. I'm going to cede to you because you were in love with this film before I was. But my number four is Philip Kaufman's The Right Stuff.
0: All right, we're, we're going to talk about that one in a couple then, because, uh, yeah, that's... Cool, I uh, will skip the right stuff. And uh, what's your number four? Well, my number four was Possession. Uh, my number three is a movie that I love specifically, I think, the theatrical version of I Give My Heart to Fanny and Alexander. I did not see that coming. And this viewing of it this time
1: around... Okay, before we go into that, I'm a film critic. These are the 30 films of this year that I love. Do I choose... Berlin Alexander plots, or do I choose Christine? Oh, choose
0: Christine every single time.
1: No, no, but that's my point is that like you choosing Fanny and Alexander, somebody would go, oh, that's the artsy film critic choice. When you really wanted to put, you
0: wanted to, you really wanted to choose Strange Brew. I'll tell you right now. Look, I, when I look at the rest of the best, the movies that kind of hurt me to leave off, it hurt me to leave off local hero, which I love a lot. It hurt me to leave off the meaning of life, which is important to me. I'll tell you a movie that I wrestled with, and I had on my list and off my list and on my list and off my list, Valley Girl. And there is nothing highbrow about Valley Girl, but I love Valley Girl dearly. Vacation is a movie that I fucking wrestled with.
1: Why why do you love Fanny and Alexander? What what about it gets
0: you on a personal level? It's it's several different things. First, it is the way it treats – childhood's perspective on film, which I'm fascinated by, because I think uh, filmmakers a lot of times forget what children are like, and they either condescend to children or they make children little adults. Fanny and Alexander is a beautiful job of, for a large part of it, putting you in the shoes of these children and respecting what they're Experiences like in a very real way that doesn't romanticize them. No,
1: it's a good point. It, it really is like within ten minutes, you're like, oh, these are not just cutesy kids. These are
0: the characters. This is just what it feels like. This is what it felt like when you were this age and you lived in this house and you had this family and and these stories were going on and drifting in and out of your life. Everything's and, bigger than you. You understand almost nothing that people are talking about, but you still. That's a that's a thing. My parents, my dad in particular, the house that his mother lived in when I was very, very young was the house that he had grown up in. It was on the farmland that my dad had had worked, and his dad had been a farmer, and then when his dad had died... They let the farm side of it go. They'd sold the farm off, and they just had the house in that particular yard left. Are you, wait, are you trying to sell this house on our podcaster? I am. I'm trying to sell the house, which, by the way, is now located on McQueenie Road in Memphis. But, Stop um, listing your real estate on our podcast. I'm just pod- saying that my memories <laughs> yeah. from when I was a very, very, very young child there, I don't remember the house in a very practical way because I think the last time I went, I was five but I remember rooms and I remember the way they felt as a kid and they were gigantic and they went on forever. And that's what Fanny and Alexander does so well is it gets that stuff, the detail stuff that is the foundation of our memory. And then on top of it, I love that the ghost story, such as it is, can be. Taken as childhood's perception of events that are too much for your brain to handle, or or supernatural,
1: or uh, that is my favorite part of the movie. I, I do love ambiguity. It's a great, great film. It is an epic sit, so you should be prepared. Uh, but I am very glad that you put it on your list because I do like to demystify the art films and the the Godards and the Truffauts, and you know, like to make them seem less lofty and more accessible is one of the better things that we can do on this show. So now my number three is. Not Fanny and Alexander. It's a Christmas Story.
0: Yay! Not on my list, but certainly a classic. Uh,
1: it is the. It's a Wonderful Life of my generation. Not to say that it Bob Clark is as good as Frank Capra, but in it, in a somewhat similar way to Fanny and Alexander, Christmas Story nails. Those little touchstones of your childhood, the radio show that he listened to and the toy he wanted and the time his dad cursed and that stupid lamp he got as
0: a prize and was so happy about it. I think we have responded to the exact same things in these two films. I think it's the idea that these filmmakers found a way to translate that language of memory and how it makes us feel. Like if it was just Norman Rockwell and it wasn't good performances
1: and sweet jokes and, and interesting characters, we'd forget about Christmas Story in a year. It's not just that it's nostalgic and honest and sincere. It's that it's funny and it it has a great editorial pace. It moves forward. You you like these characters. You also realize that it takes place in a lightly stylized world, not exactly the real
0: world. It's one of the few times a poster started me laughing before I walked in the theater, because when my friend and I got to the theater and we were outside, we were looking at the Christmas story poster. And, you know, great poster, uh, the Norman Rockwell riff, and it's a lovely piece of key art. And then as I was reading the credits, I read the title of Gene Shepherd's book, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. And I laughed. All right. Well, I like the name of the book. That's pretty good. Co- that's pretty good. And you realize right away what his attitude is.
1: Uh, I absolutely love Christmas Story. I, I, I'm willing to go on record and say I am the biggest Jewish fan of this film in the country.
0: Damn. There you go. All right. So number two, we've already spoken quite a bit about this week. I believe my number two might be the same. Terms terms of of Endearment.
1: endearment. If you think this is a treacly movie or a sappy movie or a Hallmark card movie or a chick
0: flick, fuck all that. Watch this movie. It's the kind of movie I see why my grandmother loved it. I see why my parents loved it. It is truly a movie that I think almost anybody can find themselves in. It's a remarkable, empathetic piece of gigantic writing by James L. Brooks, um, who... Was at his very best in this decade. This is, this is the decade where he hit his two giant home runs. This is one of them. Top 10 of the decade, Drew? Don't know yet, but definitely uh, a contender. It's a hell of a movie. Now, I want to play a game. I've been paying attention. I've been listening. I, I don't know your list. I haven't seen your list. You know Well, you know what my number one is because I already gave you a hint. I think I do. I think you dropped the hint. I don't think you made a big deal out of it, but can I guess? You can because we know what mine is. I believe yours is The Dead Zone. You are correct. Nice. Yeah, uh,
1: The Dead Zone. Uh, I mean, we talked earlier about how Peter Yates went from Crawl to The Dresser in the same year. And good for him. Because even if, if you love Crawl, you have to admit, it's not, you know, the first thing you're going to put on your resume. When <laughs> that, you know, uh, and, and I love that, how Cronenberg came out with Videodrome and then followed up his most. Definitely his most subversive on a big level, because like The Brood and Shivers, they're subversive, but those were indie Canadian films. Uh, Videodrome was subversive on a Universal release I- I
0: schedule. Universal delivered this crazy throbbing video cassette right to people's chests. And then and then he went over to <laughs> Paramount and made arguably
1: his most mainstream, but never boring. It is a heartbreaking fascinating, tragic. I I rewatched it last week and I wanted to stop it halfway through because I just wanted to like savor the rewatch. I I love what Cronenberg does. I love the whole cast, the late great Jeffrey Boehm. This is how you adapt a good novel, man. And that's what I love so much about this screenplay is that it is one of King's best novels. And I I think it's Cronenberg saying, yeah, I make weird horror movies that that have something to say about society and biology and and our, our medicine. I can also just make a cool, creepy ghost story. And Christopher Walken is so beautiful in this movie. I mean, I I get why he's not a leading man, but I also get why every movie fan in the world loves Christopher Walken. And this is one of the best showcases of his talents you'll ever
0: see. I love that we both ended up with adaptations as our number one, because mine is the right stuff. Uh, Philip Coffin's adaptation of Tom Wolfe's amazing fiction, nonfiction telling of the uh, Mercury 7 and the early space program. The Dead Zone, what you take is a very good, very strong Stephen King pulp novel. And Stephen King at this point was as good a pulp writer as anybody will ever be. King was not reinventing the genre. What he did so well was he wrote these stories that as you read them, he knew how to tell the story. With the right stuff, Phil Kaufman's got this other Completely different problem, which is that Tom Wolf's book is a brilliant, brilliant doorstop. Wolf is part journalist, part novelist. His stuff is hallucinatory at times. It is kaleidoscopic. It is designed to give you the full range of human experience over the course of the space program. It is not just a challenge for a filmmaker. It's literally a thumb nose at a filmmaker. It's no, you can't do this. And so Kaufman, he knew he was never going to make anybody feel like they got exactly Wolf's book. So he had to react to Wolf's book and he had to come up with what it was that inspired him or moved him or got him interested in telling the story of these men and this situation. And I find Kaufman's film poetic and rowdy, and at times it's rude and it's a little bit brash and gross. And then oh, that's what I'm, one of the things I love about it is that they're not in, they're not angelic; they're guys. <laughs> they're- it has respect for them as test pilots and as fearless, crazy human beings. I react to the Mercury Seven in this movie like jackass if they had moral compasses. There is a sense that they're doing this because it's there to do. And because the moment they realize somebody's going to do it, I have to be the person who does it. And that weird thing that happens between these men is what really I find most interesting and what Phil Coffin finds most interesting. And it's not necessarily what Wolf's book is. Wolf's book is more about you know our culture and how it was changed by this moment and the sort of giant waves pushing against history to make this thing happen when it did and the way it did. I get it. You can't have made the, the book, but you made your reaction to the book. And it's the same thing with Cronenberg. His dead zone isn't exactly the dead zone, but I have trouble now – remembering what the novel does differently because Cronenberg's version is so streamlined and it gets it right. And it is the essence of the book. And and I think great adaptation sometimes doesn't supersede. It gives you a glimpse into how somebody else reacted to something that you loved. Well, that's why we call them adaptations and not translations. You know, movies are
1: not books. (laughs) It's as simple as that. So, there's our top 10. Drew, you want to run through your top 10 real quick again?
0: Uh, yeah, my top 10 from number 10. Koyaanisqatsi, The Evil Dead, The Outsiders, The King of Comedy, Videodrome, Star 80, Possession, Fanny and Alexander, Terms of Endearment, and my number one, The Right Stuff. My top 10,
1: Christine, Risky Business, Return of the Jedi, Videodrome, Strange Brew, Possession, The Right Stuff, A Christmas Story, Terms of Endearment, and
0: The Dead Zone. I also highly recommend that if you are just listening to this episode for some reason and you didn't listen to this year, go back and find Local Hero, Betrayal, Baby It's You, Bad Boys, Tender Mercies, Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, Angelo My Love, Valley Girl, Return of the Jedi, The Draftsman's Contract, Psycho 2, The Man With Two Brains, War Game, Zelig, Vacation, Risky Business, The Big Chill, The Dead Zone, Never Cry, Wolf, Rumblefish, Silkwood, and Scarface. At the very least. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> I, I, had a, I have a master list, but I will say uh, go, go dig up extra, uh, extra. There's a lot of good movies this year. I, as much as we groaned, I'm glad to say goodbye to those movies. I had a great time with those films. I'm really excited that we we got to experience them and do it this way. And now it's about to begin, man. I can't believe that we are going to kick off Our fifth season. Fifth season.
1: Now, yeah, when when people talk about 80s movies, they generally mean movies from 84 on. Yes, 80s culture begins now. True stereotypical iconic 80s culture really began, I guess, Valley Girl was a good harbinger of what's to come. Thank you all. Thank you to every patron. Thank you to every listener. Thank you to every person who, when you see a tweet that says, what's a good movie podcast, you throw us up uh, because there are dozens of good ones. So we want to thank you for including us. Just remember,
0: we'll be back in two weeks. And when we are, you're going to get an honor student by day, Hollywood hooker by night. You're going to see a truly miserable romantic comedy between people who have zero chemistry. You'll get a Woody Allen film, a Steve Martin film, lots and lots of foreign language pictures, and perhaps the weirdest thing we could start the movie year with. All of that and more in January of 1984.